Hello, and welcome to Teacher in Zion Podcast, a podcast for Christians, Mormons, ex-Mormons, and other Book of Mormon believers, or anyone questioning their faith or the church, with an emphasis on seeking the truth wherever it leads, but especially in gaining a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Doug Hatton, and this is episode 19 of the podcast entitled, Let's Talk About Zion. Today's topic is a fun one for me, and hopefully something of interest to you. This should be a faith-building episode. There will be testimonies, but let's begin by asking a few questions about how we have viewed or handled the topic of Zion, historically speaking. One of the foundational teachings I emphasize is that God said he would establish his word or his truth in the mouth of multiple witnesses. A topic that received heavy emphasis in the early church was the concept of Zion. Joseph Smith gave us a witness of Zion, but are there other witnesses that Jackson County, Missouri, and the surrounding area, is to be the place designated for the gathering of the lost tribes and the place of the new Jerusalem in these last days. The idea of Zion, or the teachings of Zion, garnered so much excitement in the early church that it seems the saints may have forgotten to focus on the very thing that would have brought about the conditions necessary for Zion. In the missionary journals of Samuel Smith and Orson Hyde, for example, two of the traveling elders in 1832, we find entry after entry noting how they went about from place to place preaching to people about Zion and how they tried to convince people to go to Zion. This was the predominant theme in their daily journal entries. I find this interesting considering that the elders, priests, and teachers of the church were commanded by God in a revelation received directly through the Yerman Thummim to preach nothing but repentance and share with the world the fullness of the gospel using the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Instead, these men were preaching Zion, trying to convince people that they came across that they should gather there. I think this is indicative of a greater problem that we Latter-day Saints have had almost from the very beginning. Through a myriad of ways, I believe we have been diverted from our true mission, which is to preach Christ. God gave us tools to help us do this work, i.e. authority, gifts, prophecy, revelation, the restoration of the church, and the bringing forth of the Book of Mormon. But instead of using those things to help us preach Christ, we talked about the tools that God gave us to perform our mission and how that made us special. I believe we have tried to convert people to the things of God rather than using the things of God to bring people to the Lord. Think about what our primary missionary focus in the institutional church has been over the years. Has it not ultimately been to convince people that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, that we have the true priesthood authority restored? Have we not tried to convert people to the one true church, the one that we believe has all the proper ordinances and offices, etc.? But let me ask our listeners, is that how the apostles at Jerusalem taught, or the disciples among the Nephites on this continent? Is it how they taught? Both of them had authority directly from Christ. They had the Holy Spirit, and they walked in the gifts of the Spirit to a greater degree than we do. And yet we do not see them preaching about how they had authority, nor do we see them trying to convert people who already believed in Christ to some other church institution. 
Instead, they demonstrated their authority and who they were by preaching Christ with power and with the Holy Ghost. I believe this is just one of the ways Satan has been able to essentially hijack the work of the Lord, diverting us from our true purpose. Instead of preaching Christ, we preached about the things God gave us, making men, authority, offices, and organization the main focus. In doing so, we missed the mark, and the work of the restoration was put on hold. This is why God foretold in Isaiah 11:11 that he would need to set his hand a second time to recover his people Israel. The elders of the early church quickly gave up on the idea of preaching to the Native Americans, and they went about instead preaching the concept of Zion to the whites, telling them that they should pick up everything and go to Zion. Not many heeded that call. By refusing to do so, they avoided, it seems, an awful lot of suffering that they would have had to endure by going to the trouble of uprooting their lives. Imagine, if you will, having strangers come through your town in the 1830s, preaching about a place they called Zion, and telling you that you and your family should pick up and move to what was considered the Wild West, far off in the land of Missouri. What did these elders accomplish by going about and preaching Zion? They did appear to draw the interest of some people in New England who were part of a polygamous group, and I'm guessing this is where the thoughts of that practice first gained a foothold in the heart of some of the elders. But why, I must ask, would these men focus on instructing people that they should move to Zion? According to the revelation received by Joseph Smith on Enoch and his city, it says that God called the people Zion, not the city, and not the land. When Zion fled, it wasn't buildings, streets, and crops that were taken up, but the people. It is the same with the church. The church isn't an organization. It's not a denomination or an institution. It's a people. If we enter into a covenant with Christ, we become part of the body of Christ. If we come into a proper spiritual condition and we're gathered together, God would surely call us Zion, regardless of where we were. Even so, is there a place appointed for Zion in these last days? A place where the people of Zion are to gather? According to Joseph Smith, the land in and around Jackson County, Missouri, starting at the temple lot, is the place appointed for Zion to flourish in the last days. But is there any other witness to this? Was Joseph right in this, or was he off his rocker? I think this is a legitimate question. It is one that I have certainly entertained in the past. If we approach this logically, regardless of whether or not Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, he was still only one witness. The scriptures tell us that in the mouth of multiple witnesses will God establish his truth. In this episode of the podcast, I am going to share some of the testimonies that I became aware of over the years. These additional witnesses are not something I had sought after. I never conducted any kind of search for these testimonies, and by and large, I did not really count the many testimonies of the saints, as I consider their witness to be potentially biased. Not that their testimonies are untrue, only that they don't really count as being completely independent. Over the last 30 years, without trying... I have managed to stumble across numerous testimonies of a new Jerusalem or a place for Zion, which is to come, which will exist right here on this continent in the very center of the United States of America. 
I have no other explanation for how or why I encountered these witnesses, since I was not seeking them, except that the Lord may have felt he needed to strengthen my testimony of Zion for his own purpose. Most of the witnesses that I came across have absolutely no connection to Mormonism, which makes their testimony, to my thinking, of greater strength and interest to us. Before we get into those witnesses that are external to our religion, let's quickly look at what the Book of Mormon reveals, if anything, about the concept of Zion being established on the Western continent. The first thing to note is that from the evidence I have seen, the land of promise given to the Nephites is located in North America, within the boundaries of the United States. Joseph Smith, Jr., the very one who conversed with the angel about the inhabitants of this land and translated the record, told us this. According to the writings of Joseph to Emma in his own handwriting, the Nephites were the ancient mound builders, and their land stretched from the state of New York on through the Great Lakes region across the Ohio Valley, Indiana, Illinois, and into Missouri. Additionally, the prophecies within the Book of Mormon itself seem to identify this as its location, stating that the promised land of Joseph would be known as a land of liberty. That's out of Second Nephi. And after the Gentiles set up a new nation upon this land, it would become the most powerful nation on earth above any other nation, again in First Nephi. And that after that nation was established, there never would be a king or a dictator on this land of promise, hence remaining a land of liberty. It should be noted here that there have indeed been kings and dictators in both South and Central America since that time, and so they could not be described as that land of liberty. Archaeologically speaking, the timeline for the Hopewell culture in North America which was once a great civilization that arose and then vanished completely, lines up with the timeline for the Nephites in the Book of Mormon. I could spend hours sharing many details of archaeological evidence here in North America, which is very compelling, and perhaps we will do that in another episode. But getting back to the Book of Mormon, it states in 3 Nephi chapter 9 in the RLDS version, or chapter 20 in the LDS, quote, And behold... This people will I establish in this land unto the fulfilling of the covenant which I made with your father Jacob, and it shall be a new Jerusalem. In 3 Nephi chapter 10, RLDS, chapter 21, LDS, speaking of the Gentiles who would build this mighty nation, a nation that would be above all other nations, it says this, quote, If they will repent and hearken unto my words, and harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. And they shall come in unto the covenant, and be numbered among the remnant of Jacob, unto whom I have given this land for their inheritance. And they shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob, and also as many of the house of Israel as shall come, that they may build a city which shall be called the New Jerusalem. And then shall they assist my people, that they may be gathered in, who are scattered upon all the face of the land, in unto the new Jerusalem. And finally, in Ether, chapter 6 of the RLDS version, or chapter 13 LDS, it states, quote, Wherefore the Lord would have that all men should serve him, who dwell upon the face thereof, and that it was the place of the new Jerusalem, which should come down out of heaven, and the holy sanctuary of the Lord, 
Behold, Ether saw the days of Christ, and he spake concerning the new Jerusalem upon this land unto the remnant or the seed of Joseph, for which things there has been a type. Moving on from there, I would like to share just some of the testimonies or other witnesses that I've come across over the years in regards to the idea of Zion and its location. Sources that came from outside the Mormon faith. Probably the first testimony that I came across is in 2002. I read the New York bestseller called Embraced by the Light by author Betty J. Eady, who is a Native American Lakota, by the way. She recounts her near-death experience, and one of the things she was shown in heaven was a map of the United States in the last days. There she saw a great darkness and anarchy throughout the land, except for in and around the Kansas City area. It was the only beacon of light. She saw that it was the only people who were not at war with each other, but were at peace. And she saw that they were protected as if there was a bubble of light around it. I remember how I was stunned to read that. It was interesting. Here it was, another witness, one outside of the Mormon faith, one outside of Joseph. And in modern times, could it have been a coincidence? Well, this book sparked an interest in life after death experiences. And so I went on to read, not long after that, another book, this one by Daniel Brinkley, who wrote Saved by the Light. And after having been struck by lightning in 1975, he died and then came back to his body, waking up in the morgue. He was also shown great destruction that would occur in the United States. And likewise, as I recall, he was shown something very similar, that there would be a place of refuge in the center of the country. And then in the mid-1990s, I was a newly ordained teacher in the Sanford, Michigan Congregation of the Church of Christ Restored, a small organization of branches that had broken off of the RLDS Church. I was in a Bible bookstore. I believe I was looking for some music to pick up when my attention was drawn to a paperback on a shelf in a section that was marked charismatic. It was almost as if the book jumped off the shelf at me. I felt suddenly compelled by the Holy Spirit to purchase it. The author of the book was Rick Joyner of Morningstar Ministry, who has absolutely no affiliation with Mormonism. He had a three-day-long vision that took place in 1987, where he saw many things concerning the last days. The vision was published in the book called The Harvest, which underwent an update in 2007, where Joyner added some insights and spoke about some of the things that have already come to pass since the book was published in 1987. As I said, the Holy Spirit very powerfully impressed upon me to get that book. And I'll tell you, it changed my life. It really did help me to question some of our traditions in the RLDS Church, and it helped awaken something in me. It helped me to more fully come into my true calling and to adhere to what God wanted in my life rather than what the church was telling me. In that book were many marvelous visions and testimonies, but at one point I was stunned when he stated the following, quote, because of one righteous act by Harry S. Truman, who recognized the new state of Israel against the counsel of almost everyone in his government, as well as the world opinion, that in the last days 
his home state of Missouri would be favored as a center of revival in the U.S., and his hometown of Independence, Missouri, would become a blessing to many other nations. Well, as you can imagine, that got my attention. Around 2007 or 2008, two elders from the Church of Christ Restored, both men that I knew and had worshipped with, traveled from the Holden, Missouri congregation up into Michigan to visit the Chippewa Indian Reservation, which was very near where I was born and lived much of my life. They met a tribal holy man there, and upon hearing that they were from Independence, Missouri, his eyes lit up. He then proceeded to tell them that other holy men from a number of other tribes, and forgive me, those tribes were named at the time, but I have since forgotten them, but a number of holy men had each received the same message or had shared the same vision from the Great Spirit, and that was that their tribes needed to start making preparations to eventually move to Missouri, and they were to be in or around the Kansas City area, and that this would be for their protection, that they would prosper there. But he also sadly reported that many of his people were resistant to this because it would mean giving up the money from the casinos. The last I knew, they had sent emissaries here to scout out lands that could be purchased for their people. When I first moved to Independence, Missouri, after an experience where Christ appeared to me three times on the third night of a four-day fast, which I had done in solitude in the wilderness, and he told me to depart from Iowa and to come to Independence, I began to hear stories circulate while in Independence that a number of Native American tribes believed the temple lot in Independence to be a sacred place, and that they had had an experience with Christ there many years ago. As the story goes, before the white man came, that area and the surrounding lands was once a very choice hunting spot, and a number of tribes decided that they would go to war for the right to hunt it. And when the battle began, a holy being came down out of the sky and walked among them, and that this took place exactly where the temple lot is located today. And this holy being forbade them from fighting, telling them that this was a sacred land and that they should never again go to war in that land. As the story goes, the warriors left that place and went down to the Missouri River, which was much closer in those days, in order to wash off their war paint. And it is said that the river ran red that day because of the paint. And when they returned, Christ then instructed them to journey home and return back to that spot, bringing with them a rock from their homeland, which was to serve as a witness. And those stones were all piled together in one place, kind of like an altar. And it was upon the spot that we call the temple lot today. As I said, I heard this story several times and from several people, but it seemed so fantastical that it seemed almost too good to be true, and I wondered if it wasn't apocryphal in nature. While visiting the temple lot one day, I went into the Church of Christ, the Hedrakite headquarters, situated beside the temple lot, and I sat and listened to the old apostle there, who related to a group of people their story as a church. At the end of his presentation, he asked if there were any questions. I raised my hand, and I related to him the story I had heard, asking him if there was any truth to it. Quite honestly, I expected him to say that he didn't know anything about it, 
but almost at once the story got a real reaction out of him. He seemed to be a little irritated, and he raised his voice just a little and said, Yes, we know about that, but I can't say we're very happy about it. The Indians seem to think that they own this land or something. They sometimes come and do some kind of ceremony. We stop bothering to say anything to them. It's not worth the trouble. We just let them do what they do and wait for them to leave. Those are the words as close as I can remember them. And I was in shock. Apparently, there must have been some truth to the story. Years later, I would become friends with a man who serves in the community of Christ Church. He is a man who has spent a lot of time doing ministry and being ministered to by Native Americans. And he has heard the story from three different tribes now, the Oglala Sioux, the Omaha, and the Iroquois. He has signed affidavits from leaders of the Oglala and the Omaha. The chief of the Omaha tribe, when visiting Independence, saw the newly constructed Community of Christ Temple. And he was moved when he saw that it was dedicated to peace. And he was moved by that because this area was sacred to his people, because Christ had once told them that it was sacred and that they were to make no more war. And as a result, he planted a tree near that temple and placed a stone of remembrance at its base as a memorial of the event that happened there with his people so long ago before the white man came. You can go and see that tree today and see the stone at its base. In looking at old articles or newspapers, there are witnesses to the fact that there were indeed a variety of stones that came from all over the country were piled on that lot, and this was before Joseph even came and declared that spot the place where Christ would return. And it appears that when the city built the Lexington Avenue along the temple lot, they took stones from the temple lot and used them as a foundation for the road they laid. I just think what a beautiful story this is, and the fact that the Native Americans, or many of them, have considered that land sacred and that they had this experience long ago, even before the white man got here. What a testimony that there is something special about that land. There is something very special indeed about the Independence, Missouri area. And although we may not fully understand it, and although the place may not look anything like Zion, it does appear that the Lord has plans for this area. Another testimony I would relate is that around the year 2012, I was leading a mission in Independence, Missouri, and there was a man who did his best to steer the group in a certain direction. It was a direction that I did not feel comfortable with, and I kept telling him that I needed to pray about it. And he kept telling me that I did not need to pray about it, and that all the evidence for the direction we should take was found in the scriptures, which it wasn't, but neither did I feel comfortable with the notion that we didn't need to pray. Always we should be praying over everything and receiving direction from the Holy Spirit. I knew in my heart that the direction he wanted to take was the wrong one, and he seemed bent on it. But this was a persuasive man, and he kept at me. It was then that I had a dream, and in that dream it seemed to indicate that if I listened to this man and allowed him to do as he wanted, that the end result was going to be disastrous. And then one night... I was invited to a gathering at the mansion house in Independence, Missouri. David Swain had evidently run into a couple of traveling evangelists, and he had invited them to speak at the mansion house. I can tell you, I did not want to go. 
It was a weeknight. It got dark early that time of the year. And I lived 30 miles outside of Independence at that time. I was tired and totally uninterested. I told my wife I wasn't going. But suddenly, I sprang up from my chair at home and started putting on my shoes. And then I thought, why am I doing this? I sat back down, and then I sprang back up again. My wife asked me what I was doing the third time I sprang up and went to put my shoes on. And I said, I don't know. I guess I'm going to this thing. For some reason, the Holy Spirit was pushing me into it. So I went. And I took up a seat in the very back. I remember I just didn't want to be there. The place was packed. Inwardly, I questioned God why I was there. And then the man who had been trying to convince me of taking a certain direction with the group appeared and came and sat right beside me. And then the preaching started. As it turned out, the two men speaking that night were Christian evangelicals. They had no association with any faction of Mormonism. The first man began preaching, and I recall to this day how he preached in power, and I felt the Holy Ghost with him, and it surprised me. I remember thinking that this man might have more authority in his little finger than in all of the priesthood men I knew combined. And that is when he stopped his preaching mid-sentence and pointed directly to me, all the way at the back of the room. Looking me in the eyes, he told me, The Lord has a word for you. I was stunned. He then said, You have been asking the Lord what to do about a situation. The Lord says, You already know what the right course of action is. The Spirit has been trying to tell you this whole time. Listen to the Holy Spirit and listen to no man. I practically fell into my chair. The Lord had just spoken through some stranger, not even a Book of Mormon believer. After this, these two men went on to share what the Lord had given them, a vision. In it, they had seen judgment come upon America. They saw destruction, they saw disasters, and they saw war. However, they had also been shown that this area, the independence, Kansas City area, was going to be a place of refuge that God had set up. Neither of these men were from the area and not even from Missouri. They were traveling evangelists. And one of the men spoke then about how they had been spreading this message and how they had labored to convince their own family and friends to move here. Well, that's quite a testimony. Here we have ministers traveling the country, telling people of a vision, a vision of coming judgment, but also a place of refuge. And here we are again, Independence, Missouri, and the area around Kansas City as being a place of refuge. At this point in my life, it became very hard to dismiss all of these witnesses. But I'm going to tell one final testimony. I would like to share about Bob Jones. Bob Jones once lived in Independence, Missouri, and he was a part of what people have termed the Kansas City Prophets. And it would appear that he had some knowledge of the gathering. And he understood that this area of the country would be a place of revival in the last days. A friend of mine was visiting at the Vineyard Church, which was the epicenter of all that was happening with the Kansas City prophets in those days. And he overheard people discussing one day how Bob Jones had been saying something good about the RLDS people. Whatever it was, it seemed to have disturbed them. And so, being a stranger there, he asked them what was said, but nobody seemed to know the specifics, only that he had said something good about the RLDS people. 
Bob Jones wasn't there that night, so my friend took another elder with him to go visit Bob Jones at his house in Independence, Missouri one day. This was an unannounced visit. They didn't call ahead, and Bob Jones didn't even know them. But when he answered the door, he looked at the two of them and simply said, You were supposed to be here yesterday. Come on in. While inside, he showed them ten stones that he had found while digging in his garden. He had them on his mantle, and he told them that the Spirit of God began to speak to him about the gathering of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Each of those stones represented a lost tribe. My friend then inquired about what he had said regarding the RLDS people. Bob Jones then told him that they were to be like the cupbearer in Pharaoh's court, that they were going to be elevated and restored one day. He then laughed and said that it was really going to be a surprise to a lot of Christians when it happened. Bob Jones also prophesied on a number of occasions, before a number of witnesses before he died, that when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl again, it would be a sign that the revival was coming soon. Interestingly enough, without knowing about this prophecy, a friend more than a decade ago prophesied in a worship gathering that God was going to begin putting a spotlight on the Kansas City area as part of his plan to draw the attention of God's people, and that he would begin through sports. This was an odd prophecy, and quite frankly, I didn't care much about sports, but neither did he. I asked him what he thought this meant, and he didn't know. He was given the words, but he did not understand it. In 2013, the Royals went to the World Series, and that is when my friend's prophecy came back to my remembrance. They narrowly lost, but they did come roaring back the very next year, beating all the odds, often making outrageous 7th or 8th inning comebacks. And for the first time in 30 years, they won the World Series. Again, my friend's prophecy came to mind but I didn't really know what it meant. And then in 2019, the Chiefs had gotten this young kid as their new quarterback. I remember hearing a report that they had great hopes for him. But I remember thinking to myself, yeah, right. It seemed like the Chiefs only ever lost ever since I'd moved to Missouri. And like I said, I didn't really care about sports anyway. But I had no sooner dismissed this news as I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, they will do it like the royals did. They will come very close, but not quite make it this time. But next year, they will go all the way and win the Super Bowl. I can tell you, there was no way I was going to share what I had just heard publicly. I wasn't used to getting those kinds of revelations. I'd had experiences with the Holy Spirit speaking through me before, and even prophesying to certain people. But never over a world event. Never. And over sports? Why? However, I did privately share what I'd heard with maybe half a dozen people that I trusted. And that year, the Chiefs were on fire, winning games not unlike the Royals, almost miraculously coming from behind in the final quarter to win it. But they narrowly lost the game that would have sent them to the Super Bowl. Well, so far, the prophecy was right. I felt a little more bold in sharing my testimony the following year, and that was also the very first time I heard about the prophecy of Bob Jones and how it was tied to a soon-coming revival in the Missouri and Kansas City area. And so I began to really pay attention. So that year I found many people in the Kansas City area were talking about this prophecy by Bob Jones. Many Christians, including people who were part of the IHOP or the Forerunner Church, 
which originally sprang out of the movement surrounding the Kansas City Profits. And sure enough, after overcoming huge deficits, royal style, last minute, come from behind victories, the Chiefs went on to the Super Bowl, and they won. Attached to this event and the prophecy, many others have also prophesied in concert with this that a great revival is on the horizon. My testimony is that the pandemic was being used by God to move us in that direction, being like a timeout from the entertainments of the world. People stopped traveling. They stopped going out to eat. They stopped going to movies. TV and movies stopped filming. And we began to run out of entertainment. I told people it was like God, like a parent, had told the world to go to their room and think about what they had done. And now, after all of this, it has been announced by FIFA that the 2026 World Cup will be held here in Kansas City. What comes next, I don't know. But this surely isn't about sports. It's about something greater. And God is trying to get our attention. He is calling upon us to set aside those things that so easily beset us and prepare for what is coming. There are other testimonies I could share. But I will end by saying that there is a phenomenon here in Independence and in the Kansas City area that virtually everyone I know here has experienced. We keep meeting people who are not native here, but moved here from another state or another country. And that in itself is not necessarily exceptional. But they have a testimony and will confess to you that they did not simply choose to come here. Rather that the Spirit of God had led them to come here, to this part of the country specifically. The vast majority of them have no connection to Mormonism, and they have no concept of Zion. And often they don't even know why they were brought here, only that it was God's will. Some of these testimonies are quite powerful. Surely this is the gathering. It is happening physically first, and so then I believe it will happen spiritually next. In other words, God seems to be bringing people here that he counts as his, before they even know why they are here. But I believe they will soon find out. In the 1990s, there was even an entire church group that once moved here from another state, about 300 people in all. And they came in one large caravan of cars and trucks. They did so because a prophet among them had received a revelation to do so. They sold their homes, and they came and they found a large plot of land, built housing, and opened a popular restaurant along Highway 70 that some of the church members worked at. Again, these were not Mormons or related to any type of Mormonism whatsoever. They did not believe in the Book of Mormon. In a somewhat similar but more recent event, I was recently drawn to visit a church called Shift KC. It's just outside of Lee Summit, but in the Kansas City district. Their pastor is a man from Texas who has a testimony that God called him into ministry. This man didn't go to seminary, but he walks in the gifts of the Spirit, including prophecy. And when he was in Texas preaching, the Lord spoke to him one day and told him to take his ministry and move to Kansas City. He told the Lord he didn't want to leave Texas, and furthermore, he didn't want to move to Kansas City. The Lord's response, though, was that if he did not move to the Kansas City area, he would have no ministry. The very first night my wife and I visited this church, he shared this testimony of how he had come to Kansas City. And then he began to share a vision that he'd had of the Kansas City area in the last days, which he said was coming very soon. 
He shared how it would be a place of light to the rest of the world. The people would be looking here to see the hand of God at work. The people would come there from around the world. That he saw a highway between heaven and the Kansas City area. And he saw thousands of angels ascending and descending. And as he went on, I was filled with the Spirit of God. And I realized he was prophesying of Zion. There is more I could share, but I think this is probably a good place to stop. I hope some of the testimonies I shared today give you a measure of hope and that you are once more excited to sincerely and more fully come unto Christ with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, desiring to draw closer to Him so that we might be a part of His great plan for us in this final dispensation of time. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe or follow so that you can be notified when future episodes are released and share it with a friend if you dare. Also, be sure to check out the Restored Gospel podcast with host Mike Barrett, which features Shane Robinson, Corey Stark, and other guests. And if you're listening to this podcast on your podcast app, feel free to check out our other resources and teachings on the YouTube channel. Just search for the word teacher and then a space, and then in Zion is one word. Also, I wanted to express to everyone that I greatly enjoy hearing from you. So if you wish to share something, make a comment, ask a question, or suggest a topic, you can email me at teacherinzion at gmail.com. That's teacherinzion, all one word with no spaces, at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless. Join us for discussion in our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hope of Zion. Or at our YouTube channel, Teacher in Zion. That's the word teacher, space, and in Zion spelled as one word. My books can be found at amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Douglas Hatton. That's H-A-T, like a hat on your head. T-E-N, like the number 10. Until next time.